Welcome, welcome, welcome to Cloud Streaks, a podcast where James and I, who have been friends for 30 years, discuss an interesting article, podcast, or interview. I hope you noticed the parody I just did of last week tonight. Beautifully executed, Duncan. Uh, I, thought, <laughs> I thought we were in the audience with him. If you don't watch last week tonight, you should. It's genius. A few years ago, an ex-girlfriend of mine asked me if I could meet any celebrity, who would it be? I think she was assuming I would have picked some good-looking female, but I actually picked John Oliver, who's the host of Last Week Tonight. If she had have asked you 10 years ago, you would have said Misha Barton. I know, it's slightly embarrassing. <laughs> I had a big crush on Misha Barton, and I really watched The OC and, and loved it, so I was a real mature um, human. Uh, so, anyways, um, Why did I pick him? I think there's sort of two different um, vectors in TV. One is it can be entertaining or it can be dry. And the other one is it can be nutritious information or it can be junk food. I think ideally you want it to be entertaining and nutritious. And I think this is where Last Week Tonight and John Oliver are the best. They blend both of them together. Mm, mm. So, James... uh, Oh, go, sorry, yeah. Well, I mean, I was just thinking of Jon Stewart because uh, if if you haven't heard of John Oliver, chances are... you might, um, you might have heard of John Stewart who championed The Daily Show um, where this, would you call it satire news or comedic news um, print, uh, platform first started off in, in America? But um, to me, like if you had asked me five years ago, it would have been John Stewart. Mm. Um, if you had asked me today, it would, have, it would probably be Neil deGrasse Tyson. So um, that's the celebrity you want to meet the most is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yes. And ah, interesting. It is interesting because for me, he reminds me a lot of my science teacher at uh, at school. He doesn't and, remind me of anything of any of the teachers I had, unfortunately. He's very interesting and entertaining and my teachers but, were less so. Well, um, be that as may, his, his core quality though is that he's just so excited talking about science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so Mr. Gilbert was my teacher. Um, so I would not, um, you know, dare to say he had the same amount of uh, – pizzazz or charisma, uh, charisma as Neil, but he had that same love and fervor and he just made me love science. And I was just like, wow, mm. this is really, really interesting and amazing. But you could not help but be swept up in whatever it was that he was talking about. Um, same for John Oliver, I would have to say. <laughs> I think it's kind of the same. They both make something that's nutritious, entertaining. So yeah. they're talking about stuff. And so, yeah, I think they're very good. All right, what was the article for this week? It is a Wait But Why article called How to Pick Your Career. And when it came out, I got a voice message from James saying, oh my God, oh my God, Wait But Why, Wait But Why, oh my God, Wait But Why. And that was it. <laughs> so that was for really anyone good. who doesn't know what Wait But Why is, it's a blog that sends out a article once in what, a blue moon, once every time the planets align because it's been what feels like an eternity since the last time he's released something. And they're just so good. They're really, really good articles. So this one um, was about how to pick a career. Uh, yeah. Um, so Wait Why does articles on just anything that's sort of interesting. And I think that they sort of fall that similar intersection of entertaining and nutritious. And they cover whether it is artificial intelligence or how to pick the right partner or finding a job, or the history of yeah, panel procrastinate, like you know, history of religion or religious for the, religion for the non-religious. Um, it's a very broad spectrum, and it's incredibly good. I've actually read every single article that Wait But Why do, 
And so when it came out, we thought it was an absolute no-brainer to talk about this. Mm. Um, so this one's titled How to Pick a Career. But we actually thought we'd talk mainly about one of the people that it links to, 80,000 Hours, because we think that the information there is actually a bit more interesting. <laughs> um, so they did a lot of research. These are sort of people that have done PhDs at, I think, Oxford or Cambridge, one of the two big you know, UK unis. And they went through and they said, you know, what do people think makes a good job? And they had these four things. Is it highly paid now? Is it going to be highly paid in the future? Is it stressful? And is the working environment unpleasant? So just, and, for, just yep. for, to be clear, this is what people who were interviewed or surveyed thought made a good career, right? Exactly right. So this uh, is what people typically think. Yes, yeah, so if you're growing up, what would like 15-year-old Duncan have thought? He basically thought that the best job was the highest paid job and that the only reason you worked was for money. And so you basically tried to get the highest paid job there was. James, did you have a similarly deep understanding of the world or were you a little bit more um, circumspect no, than me? No, I would no, I was certainly a lot more naive than you, Duncan. I wasn't even thinking about um, in terms of wealth uh, or anything like that. My intimation was whatever was the most fun. Um, like how can I enjoy mm. myself the most? And I never thought of it as something that was engaging. I thought of it as something that was either entertaining or, um, you know, at the very least, amusing in a sense that I was getting, um, you know, satisfaction out of it. Uh, so when I was fifteen, I wanted to play basketball <laughs> for 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 a living, and that was the only thing I kind of knew about at the time because we watched NBA so much um, back in the uh, Michael Jordan and Shaquille O'Neal era. Uh, so if you're a child of the '90s like we are, then hopefully that'll resonate with you. <laughs> interesting. Um, well, I you know didn't find school interesting. I thought it was very boring. And I kind of assumed that work would be the same, very boring. But this thing you did so you weren't homeless. Um, and so then if you were going to do it, you may as well get paid as much money as possible because I kind of thought that then you could like, I don't know, go on nice holidays or something. Um, but this is the first thing we're going to talk about actually. What does the research say about money and whether it can make you happy or not? Now, obviously, every person is different. So this is kind of an average um, but the research says on average that no money will make you sad, but lots of money won't make you happy. And there's actually this point. So it depends on the city you're in. So um, I don't know, New York is more expensive than, you know, Charlottesville or something. Um, but for America, the, that for a household, more than $70,000 per person doesn't equal any more happiness. It literally goes flat. And less well, than that it, makes it diminishing you sad. Return, significant no, but they look at those four different factors. And once you include the other factors, what people say is they think it makes them happier, but what they actually demonstrate is it doesn't. Yeah. And this is per household. And so if you're actually, you know, single, so you're, I don't know, have a family, then it's actually $40,000. So in America, $40,000 is the point beyond which money doesn't make you more happy. And this is kind of the point where you've got the basic levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs looked after. We talked about this before, but you need to be able to have food in your mouth, a roof over your head, and not be living like in you know fear of, I don't know, someone evicting you, um, or that there's some you know person in the house who might be emotionally mean or physically you know mean to you. Um, and so I just took that as someone going to steal your TV. <laughs> and so maybe I thought this, James. You know, what do you think about this? For you, do you think that this research resonates with you, or do you think no? Nah, Money well, does make me happy. Yeah, or so it, it is. 
Well, the first weakness um, is perspective. I do not have perspective of living on a wage of $40,000 as an individual um, all the way up to living on, you know, plus 200000 um, and supporting a family. Um, because even right now, I can rationalize to myself that if I were earning a higher income, it would increase my life satisfaction because it would mean that I would have, you know, more ability to um, go on fun holidays or I would be able to give more opportunity to my children. Um, so while I'm sitting here looking at the research and I can say, okay, that makes sense, this seems to, you know, be quite um, plausible in this findings, I still have an, a personal or an emotional um, uh, perspective that tells me that, well, no, actually, I can see how earning a high income would actually make me happier or have um, more satisfaction in my life. Did that make sense? Okay, let's just, for argument's sake, let's say you earned $50,000 more a year. Hmm. You, what, how and why would that make you happier? I'd buy a Tesla. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd be the happiest human on earth. <laughs> no, no, but well, like, you know, on a more yeah. serious level, like, you know, is there anything tangible that you think would yeah. come out of this? Well, I mean, for example... Um, you know, holidays are not exactly the most consistent <laughs> occurrences in this household at the moment. We, um, you know, we have a very, very happy lifestyle here in, um, you know, the, the humble suburb of um, Sydney. But there's always more that you can be doing. Um, and so, you know, if we wanted to be able to come down to Melbourne more, for example, to see our friends and our family, like at the moment, our, um, our mandate is that we will only really come down when it's necessary. Um, you know, like weddings and engagement parties are part of that. And that's because um, of cash perspective, right? C- correct, correct. But the other part of it is um, looking at, you know, what do we want to be putting our, um, our money towards in the future? Like, do mm. we want to be sending our kids to private school? Well, that costs a lot of money. Um, you know do we want to start saving for a house and actually you know live in something that will have more provision for our children more space for mummy and daddy because god knows we could do with them (laughs) (laughs) okay so net net you think that a bit more money would make you happy but let's maybe let's ask this way if you earned 50 grand more a year you'd be happier but if you earned say 50 and 500 grand more a year do you think the difference between that would make much you know Mm. change or do you think so, in other words, you think you're below the sort of point where money yeah, yeah, basically yeah. has massively diminishing returns, i.e. Yeah. matters less and less. Yeah, so I can definitely say that I think that I agree with the diminishing returns in, ter- in the sense that um, there will be an invisible marker or point or inflection point um, for me and I think um, possibly for everyone where after that point, it really doesn't add to your overall life satisfaction too much because... Um, you know, if you take money out of the equation altogether and you just do what um, Tim Urban um, highlights in Tim, his Tim article. Tim Urban is the writer from the Wait But Why article, just for, or writer from Wait But Why, I should say, just yeah. for um, people's context. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into what he um, talked about in more detail, but it's basically just being authentic with what it really is that you want. Um, and people often don't know or don't actually try to understand what it is they truly want. So they just... Um, well, so if I don't truly understand, I can just um, outsource it to, well, I just would like more money and then I can figure out what I want to do with it. <laughs> mm. But um, so, yeah, so I don't think the uh, the increase in life satisfaction is linear between an extra 50000 and 500000 um, Absolutely not. Like um, it, it, 
it's, it's kind of like this exponential curve in that when you go up that many levels in your um, livelihood or in, or in your, um, your net wealth, um, <laughs> the world makes it very easy for you to spend that money. <laughs> um, and you know, people at those level, people who are um, at the top of their industry um, have just the same kind of stress that you and I do. So um, it's not the money that's making them, uh, well, from what I understand, it's not the money that makes them um, have a satisfying life. It's a, a bunch of other factors. Cool. Um, so what about for me? Um, so I've got like a, I think a relatively good example. So um, five years, five and a bit years ago, um, I stopped working for Google. And Google pay quite handsome wages. So I was earning considerably more than, I don't know, average. And then I started Enrollo, which is the uh, education company that I'm co-founder of. And I had no income for eight months. And then I had a 70% pay cut. Um, so you kind of notice 70%. <laughs> And so pay cut from no income? What is that even? No, no, no. I had 70% pay cut from Google. Um, and so I basically went from earning a very good wage to earning no wage and then earning a very modest wage, I would say. And I was easily the happiest I'd ever been in my life. And I was easily the most engaged. I had enough money just to be able to put a roof over my head and food in my mouth. And we live in Australia, so there's not really too much social, you know, there's not much crime and other things here. Um, and so it's actually, I think, the safest country on earth, equal with New Zealand um, in any point in history. <laughs> um, and so for me, it was a really stark thing to be able to say, actually, the cash money that I was earning didn't matter. It just, it honestly, it was actually what I was doing with my time that made the massive difference in terms of happiness. And the vast majority of your time is spent working when you're awake. And so this is what this 80,000 hours blog is. You're going to spend 80,000 hours working for an average person. And so for me, the, re the research really does ring true. No money will make you sad, but lots of money won't make you happy. It's how you spend your time and your life is just made up of time that really, really matters. And so... Yeah, I, it definitely you know makes sense to me, and I think it's right. I'm sure everyone's different. I mean, James, do you have any follow up questions for me there? Yeah, so um, I guess what um, a, a, um, a line of thinking is that people don't necessarily you know money isn't a um, you know isn't a source of happiness, but it can be seen as a means to happiness. Or um, in, you know, the more money you have, the more freedom uh, it can be uh, supposed that you have. Those. Did you notice a difference in your level of autonomy or your freedom in, t in the sense that you, there were things that were a lot more um, apparent to you when you were earning less as opposed to when you were working at Google? Because I mean, like Google also do a very good job of taking care of you as well. They can um, uh, you know, do your dry cleaning for you if you want. They can feed you on campus if you want. Um, but then after that fact, you had to start taking all of those on board yourself. Yeah, I mean, less money is something you notice. But what I realized is I was spending money on all these things that didn't actually matter. Mm. <laughs> so again, it's having enough money. And then, as you said, the world's very good at finding ways for you to spend money. Um, but it's not necessarily good at finding ways to help you figure out what is important to spend money on. Mm. And I think it's actually not about spending money. It's how you spend your time. And so that's what I kind of realized is that I had been spending money doing things that weren't actually the best way to spend my time. And it helped me reassess this. And one of the key ones is like it's easy to kind of be like, oh, well, this job will pay me more. 
But actually, the majority of your waking hours, more than anything, not majority, but the single biggest block of time is at work. That's where you're spending most of your time. So if you're not getting you know, good outcomes from work, i.e. it's making you engaged and, and all these other things, then you're probably not going to be getting the best outcomes from a life satisfaction, life fulfillment point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not saying that there weren't some things, you know, I used to do if I wanted to go to a fancy dinner and I didn't think about it. Whereas after that, wasn't much fancy dinner going on. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, again, it didn't matter to me. Like, could I still go and have dinner at a sort of, you know, modest restaurant with my friends? Hell yeah. Um, you know, but I would be doing that like max once a week. The rest of the time we were like, you know, eating food that wasn't very expensive. <laughs> That's me me and my two co-founders um, at the beginning. Yeah, it was very, um, it was fun actually. Um, but, Egg yeah. and rice, I heard. Yeah, uh, we would do things like Domino's Pizza had tight ass Tuesdays. And so we would buy multiple pizzas on Tuesday and then we'd put them in the fridge. And because we were time poor, because we were trying to build a startup, we'd then just, you know, microwave bits of pizza as we felt because we didn't have to then walk somewhere. So it was very cheap food and also very convenient food to just sort of uh, later in the week, I'm hungry, I need something now. I can microwave this and get back to work. Um, genius. So we'll, yeah, Absolutely so genius. I'm not, yeah. Um, I'm not sure people would claim this is the world's healthiest lifestyle, um, but we were having a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to what 80,000 hours say actually is what makes a great job. And so we'll read out these things, not in necessarily any order. Work you're good at, one. Next one, work that helps others. Number three, engaging work that lets you enter a flow state. And by flow, they've got freedom, variety, clear tasks, feedback. Supportive colleagues, no major negatives like long hours, unfair pay, and a job that fits your personal life. So we thought we'd pick apart each one of these and then sort of see them. So the very first one was work that you're good at. Um, so James, do you want to begin here? Um, do you have any thoughts on this? Do you think it's important to have a good job for work that you're good at? Well, yes. So nobody wants to be bad at anything that they spend time on. (laughs) Um, it, it, it really can be, um, I guess, dispiriting to, um, have to apply yourself towards something that you know that you are not confident in. So for me, the context here is what is the potential? Um, and by that, I'm, I'm talking about when you want to do start a new job, chances are you're not going to be very good at it because you haven't had enough time in that particular role. But it's whether you can see the potential for you to be good at your job um, in that particular role. Um, I think in order for you to get satisfaction, you do need to see a point where you can be good at it. Um, otherwise, you won't feel like that you are even generating value for whatever it is that you are working on. Um, so it's not even about value to a greater community, society, or um, uh, 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 city, but it's like value for the company that you even work for. Uh, and so I think, and 80,000 hours to uh, point this out, when people are asked, they usually like to say things like that are just low stress, high pay. <laughs> and by low stress, it can just be like, I would like an easy job of sitting by a lake looking at pictures of lakes on my computer. <laughs> but when um, you look at what actually gives you satisfaction, it's, it's actually excelling in a craft or excelling in a, um, a field, um, whatever that may be. So I think work that you're good at, um, and I'll go through this in the other point, um, some of them can be a little bit subjective or not relevant to anyone, everyone, but I think 
being good at what you do can apply across the board. I think everyone would like to, you know, strive to be good at what it is that they do. Okay. Um, I'll sort of add in something here, which is, it's not necessarily good. It's good versus expectations. So as James said, if you're starting some new job, you're probably not going to be very good at it. (laughs) Um, And you've got a long way to go. And so if you're then not great, that's, that's fine. But you're hopefully going to get better. And so you need to be hopefully improving and that the people at work think you're doing a good job. But that doesn't mean that you're good at it. So work you're good at is actually sometimes meaning the work that you need to get good at. So I think you put that in a slightly different way. I'll give you an example. In my first job, a lot of it was around communications and speaking to people. And I wasn't great at that. I wasn't horrible, but I, you know, there was actually someone who was started who was hired as a graduate with me. Um, and she was much better at communicating than I was. And there was a very clear yardstick. And I would say three to six months in that the, they thought that she was doing a much better job. And I agree. <laughs> um, and, and, but then I sort of worked on this. Um, and so if I explain work you're good at, it's kind of like, are you good versus the expectations? Or do your bosses think you're doing a good job as an example? And so for me, yeah, three, six months in, I don't think I was doing a good job and I don't think my bosses thought I was doing a good job and that's not a great feeling. I mean, it's a very bad feeling. Um, mm. But then I worked hard on this and I think that by a year in, I had sort of caught up to being, you know, maybe, you know, almost as good at communication but then there was the kind of message that I was giving that I think was probably stronger. So, they say that, you know, your outcome is message times communication of that message or message times messaging. And my messaging wasn't great to begin with, but I think I had stronger message and almost as good messaging to get an mm. overall better outcome. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I'll stop there. What do you yeah, so, uh, like, I think uh, I, re- I really like um, prescribing to other people's models that they uh, use to try and uh, explain these kinds of phenomena. But um, what I, I attribute to here is Tony Robbins' uh, equation for happiness and happiness equals progress. So, uh, when you are looking at are you good at what you do if you can see it in a in in the lens of uh you know mastering your craft not beca- not being a master because i think the other side is that it can be boring if you if you become super 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 competent in something like i don't know excel <laughs> um you might actually lose interest and so but if you can see that it's something that you can continue to hone, refine, and improve in, then I think um, it's a lot easier to stay engaged and to stay um, to have increased satisfaction because you're still good at what you do. Does that make sense? It does. Um, this is actually what they call engaged before. So point one was, are you good at it? And then point three was engaged in where you enter a flow state. And so, what I think you're referring to is that flow state. And I think we'll go into more detail there. There was one other point that I kind of wanted to touch on here. I think there are two ways to make the world better. And this is a you know, mass simplification. I'm sure there are more than two. One is <laughs> there's something that the world needs and that they, we already make, but that we don't make enough of it. So, we should make more of that. Or you don't need to make something that doesn't exist. And I actually look for the things which that don't exist yet. And so, therefore, it's like we need to do something that hasn't been done. And if you're doing something that you've never done before and that no one's ever done before, you're probably not going to be very good at it. But the goal is to then get better at it quickly. And so, I say work that you're good at, and I think you can look at it this way. Some people I remember that I work with, 
I'd say, okay, we're going to do this. And they go, but I don't know how to do it. And I'm like, yeah, nobody does, but we're going to have to figure it out. And initially they're like worried. Well, who can tell me how to do it? I go, it hasn't been done before. There's no book. There's no expert. There's no university degree. We have to figure it out. And initially you see them like, what, what, how, how? You know, someone needs to train me on this. And then they sort of realize, oh, hang on. I can figure this out. And so what I sort of try to do is find things that need to be done or I think that will help make the world better that haven't, nobody's done. And so by definition, you're not good at it. And then I go and try and do them and I hope to get better at it as fast as possible. Mm. So it's kind of the first derivative. I want to be the best at getting better. I'm not yeah. worried about whether I'm any good at it. Yeah. So um, there are definitely people out there um, like um, what Reid Hoffman talks about in his podcast, Masters of Scale, who love being infinite learners. Um, and so infinite learners love to start at what they call a point of supreme ignorance, where you either never have been across something before or you're in a new area that nobody's done before. But if you can um, put yourself in a position where you can start to learn it, whether through experience or through acquiring um, already established knowledge, then that can also be a supremely uh, satisfying um, uh, impact on your job uh, because you're starting going from zero to one in, in your level of competency. Um, but I think, uh, I think we covered step one. What's step two? Step two is work that helps others. I thought we'd go on a sub-tangent here first. Is passion important for work? And where oh. does passion come from? And they've done a bunch of research on this. And so the first one is that passions change over your life. They don't all have to, but a lot of them do. And so, James, I thought I'd ask you, have you had any passions that you were really passionate about, say, I don't know, in your teens or 20s, that really no longer you are that passionate about? So do you think this rings true? Do passions change over life? Well, so, um, I mean, passion is one of those things that's very, very broadly associated um, between people. Um, like I wouldn't call them passion. I would call them pursuits or interests or um, extracurriculars. I, I, I would not say I was passionate about snowboarding, but I supremely enjoyed doing it. Um, or I would not say that I was passionate about um, you know, going to... Um, oh God, I actually can't, like, well, play, playing video games, but I supremely enjoy doing it. Uh, but those are things that are completely not within my realm or, or sphere of interest anymore. Hmm. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them passion. And I think it's important to create, make a distinction. So um, whether or not I was passionate about it, uh, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be uh, confident in saying that I was. But I don't think I actually had a passion for anything um, in my earlier years. The only, the first time I actually felt like I got passionate about anything was was, was becoming a parent or um, mm. in in my relationships. Um, okay. So if I, if I had a passion, it, it is uh, my passion is uh, my very close relationship, <laughs> and that hasn't changed. I think that James makes a really good point. Some people don't have like, I don't know if there's like scales of liking, like from indifference to like love or something <laughs> and passion may maybe being love for something that isn't a human. <laughs> um, so I have, um, you know, I, I really liked cars. So I would read 20 hours of car magazines a week for maybe 15, 20 years of my life. Um, I was very passionate about fashion. Um, I thought you might've put that in there, James. So James and I, for instance, were doing, a sewing course after work when we were sort oh, of, yeah. you know, and we were yeah, yeah. wanting to learn how to do that. And I thought one day I maybe wanted to set up a fashion 
label. Did you um, ever finish your shorts? No, I didn't finish my shorts. <laughs> um, and so, you got mine somewhere. Yeah, cars was one that I was very passionate about. And now I would say that I'm one step above indifferent towards them. I don't read about them, you know, you know, yeah, I can appreciate some cars as a work of what I think art. Like I'm not sort of seeing them as a status symbol, but I think that people put love and care into them and that they can see, you know, something coming out of it. So I think cars can have personality, which is great. And, you know, things should have personality more. But for me, cars is an example of one where I was very passionate that I'm sort of no longer passionate about. Um, and so, yeah, what that, that definitely has changed to me. Um, one of the things I've also seen with friends, and I wanted to see, you know, some friends, for instance, being very passionate. I've got a friend who runs a fashion label, and um, she's not as passionate, basically, about it as she was before. I've had friends who are very passionate about things, other things, like, I don't know, food, and then those sort of things, you know, wane. So, I have seen this in other people as well. Do you have any sort of close examples of people where you've seen maybe things shift, James, or not really? Well, um, so I think just going back to the broader sense of um, the advice people are given in today's day and age, um, which is to follow your passion and how that can um, can can be misleading. Um, for me, for me personally, I think what we should be careful of is not prescribing to some um, and uh, the pronunciation police can pull me up here, but. <laughs> Panacea. Yeah, that's um, good. Hey, we, we need like a... What does a, panacea like, mean? Because it's a little bit of a fancy word. Uh, yeah, it's a fancy word. Sorry. So it's it a means silver bullet. Same thing. Yeah, silver bullet. Like something that solves it. Um, yeah, so there's like one thing. It's like the thing that solves everything. Yeah. It's a panacea. Yeah. It's going to be the magic cure. We've got a problem. Yeah. What is the silver bullet that's going to solve it? That yeah. one thing that's going to slice through and just problem solved. And so for the last... Let's just simplify and say less last one or two decades. That's kind of been for your career, follow your passion, um, the advice that people have been given. Um, and I think that can be true for some people. There are some people that are out there who always knew that they wanted to be a doctor when they were growing up, when they went to medical school, until they graduated. Uh, and that's great. And I think that's something that um, works well for them. But then there are other people, myself included, and maybe you as well, Duncan, who grew up having no freaking clue what it is that they wanted to be doing. And so when you hear this mantra or this advice, which is find your passion and then figure out how to make a career out of it, that actually can be quite um, overwhelming because you're like, well, ho- what, hold on, like, my passion is like cars or my passion is fashion. How do I you know, start doing this kind of thing? Mm. Um, and it can be, uh, it can often lead to uh, situations like your friends who started their own label, but then realized that um, what they were passionate about was actually, you know, the appreciation of the art of fashion and not necessarily running a business in fashion. Um, mm. So I, I, I think it's really, really uh, crucial. And I think this is where 80,000 Hours is so helpful, is that they offer kind of like, not a counterpoint to it, but like a mental model, you know, you find one that works for you. And if follow your passion doesn't work for you, then you can try a different one, which is what they're talking about here. Yeah, so they say that um, you can become passionate about things. And there's actually sort of, a, a, you know, a lot of research around how to do this. So you might have been born and, and you, you're like, I don't know, you love food or whatever else it is, or cars. Um, so you can become passionate about new areas, what the research says. And one of the key ways to do this is to help others. So if your work help others, 
your practice to get good at it and you then the work becomes engaging and you like the people you work with, then you'll become passionate about it. So hang on, I'll read it again. If your work helps others, your practice to get good at it, uh, so you practice to get good at it, you work on engaging tasks and you work with people you like, then you'll become passionate about it. So this is kind of the six ingredients they have. And then work can become something you're passionate about. And so I thought I'd start with my personal experience here and then James, you can. Um, I, you know, thought that, yes, we could improve education with Ed Rollo um, and wanted to help the world. But you didn't catch me. Like, so now I will find a piece of education research that comes out and I will get giddy. Like I will literally see the title and I'll be like, oh my God, oh my God. Just like when James called up and was like, where but why, where but why, oh my God, where but why. And, and then I will like get up at work and I will like basically not be able to control myself from going over to somebody else and saying, have you seen this? This is amazing. Here's, have you seen this? Blah, blah, blah. And it, you know, if, you, if I had walked up to myself from five years ago and said this, I'd be like, what are you talking about? This is some ridiculous esoteric piece of education research. And so you can become passionate about work if you have all the ingredients. And they've got the six ingredients here, which is work you're good at, work that helps others, engaging work, supportive colleagues, no major negatives, job that fits your personal life. And that's, that was an, a humongous epiphany for me. And I've found this to be true. And I've also had, you know, this, seen this in lots of people. And I've been lucky to see it sort of firsthand, you know, people at work. Um, and, you know, like, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and then they come in and they're like, oh, my God, how did I think that? And I'm like, no, I get you because I, I used to think similar things. So, in other words, you can work on something you're passionate about or you can become passionate about new areas through good work. And I found that to be true. And one of the key ways and key ingredients is that you should be helping others. So, yeah. James, do you have any questions for me or do you have any thoughts well, about no, this? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll add to it with my own experiences. So, Duncan did um, bring up a very important point that I missed, which was that, um, like Duncan, I too was quite um, – I was very interested and involved in fashion from, I would say, my early adult years. Um, I think that's one of the reasons – you and I kind of inflicted – because we were best friends for a long time and so – our interests affected each other. <laughs> you know, so it's like you being interested in fashion was meant that I was interested in fashion or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, we were little metrosexuals. God, looking back, it was not good. Um, <laughs> happy, happy to say your choice of hairstyle did not fall uh, <laughs> yeah. over to me. But um, as, it would, as um, chance would happen, um, I now work for a fashion company, The Iconic mm. in Australia. Um, and that was largely driven by, well, it wasn't the sole deciding factor of why I wanted to work there, but that was a large um, driving force. And um, to your point, as soon as I became ingratiated in this industry, I started looking for um, you know, research reports, insights on what is, uh, you know, what is the future, what is happening in the world of, or the business world of fashion. And like to, you know, like to your point of new uh, research on education, when I find a new um, editorial on why Zara is winning uh, the world of fashion against H&M because they apply the four E's of marketing instead of the four P's, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is so incredibly <laughs> useful, useful information. And like, I, I, I don't even have a background in marketing, and I'm still finding this absolutely yummy information, and I post it on our internal um, work board. I'm like, you you got to read this because it's really... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I send it to everyone. Um, so, uh, you know, that 
really, really um, you know, compels me to want to um, learn more about the job I'm doing because I'm so um, involved in it. But the other thing is this whole idea about work that helps others. Um, in, in a way, it, it kind of like, so there are two parts of it. One, is there a direct relationship to helping someone? Um, and I think what Duncan does with his education company, Adrola, there is that direct relationship, which is the more successful we are as a business, the more students we help with their, um, their learning ed, uh, or their education. Um, but in a way, and please don't um, mistake me saying that this is true for all businesses, but a business and a profitable business exists for the, um, for the purpose of or for the reason that they create value. In the market, like you create a product, and the customer on the other side agrees to purchase that product because it has something of value to them. Uh, now there are, you know, there are. Um, it's meant to be, but there are unfortunately yeah, yeah, some businesses, are, yeah. like I don't know, the banks, as you you could say, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You know, are price gouging, and there are some companies yeah. which maybe so like I don't know, Exxon Mobil pollute the world at the expense behavior. of everybody else, and yeah, so yeah, I think. It's it's a stretch um, yeah. to say it's definitely not all, but you know, yeah. hopefully, companies are helping you yeah. know make humanity better. Yeah. So in in a way, it, it, yes, it's a stretch. But like even for something like the iconic, um, we you know we looked at what our purpose was. Like, why are we here? What did we do? And we um, we we created our own purpose, which was we are here to help people find the truest version of themselves. Right? So if you think about that, like everyone um, has this ideal self and we may not be able to truly express that um, in one way, which is what we wear, because either A, we have to conform to a dress standard because we need to wear suits to work, or B, because we don't actually know how to express ourselves because we don't have any idea where to start. And so the iconic presents itself as an option to say, well, we have what we think is the best um, range of fashion or sporting apparel and if you come onto our site we are confident that you will find what it is that you feel expresses you best and mm. that's how we see we help people um yeah so i, just, I think you yeah sorry Duncan, go on. i'll just jump in um so humans are actually designed to like beauty um so when we you see a flower or something or actually even a beautiful person it makes you feel happy um, and this is because of like biological needs. So if you see a fruit, piece of fruit, you may, or if you see something that's like, I don't know, a weed, doesn't make you happy. And so beautiful spaces actually give energy. And this is wonderful research from, from education where 16% of the learning outcomes can be attributable to the space. And so there's like basic principles like how much light is there, how fresh is the air, what's the temperature and other things. And then there's, so that's probably two thirds of it. And then the other third's kind of beauty. Um, and so, actually making beauty for the world isn't necessarily a sort of bad thing because this gives energy or to humans. meaningless. Yeah, meaningless thing. Uh, and energy means that people are more creative, they're more happy, they're, you know, enjoying life more. And so, I think that fashion isn't just a sort of fast fashion, get some money, you know, people following trends. Done well, it is a way to help people express themselves. And that's some people mm -hmm. say, look good, feel good, um, you know, and... Yeah also helping people put beauty into the world because a well-designed building might be great, but also a well-designed human, a well-dressed human, can actually help make others happy. And Absolutely. so this isn't just, I know that some people might say, oh, come on, you could, you could be saving, you know, starving babies in Africa or something. And I'm not saying that that isn't important, but it also is not true that fashion is not important either. Mm. Having said, yeah. which I'm sure like everything, it can be done poorly. 
Yeah. Oh, well, that's actually the, the key point there, is that um, what this, uh, this stipulation work that helps others kind of leaves out is the second order or third order consequences of a particular um, job or industry. So like fashion um, is one is the second most wasteful industry in the world. It produces the second most waste. I can't remember what number one is. I think it's... Um, uh, oh, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so even though it's something um, to be appreciated and it's helped people express themselves, it also has this um, other side which can be considered harmful, not to, well, yes, to people as well, because you've got, um, you know, sweat factories still, you've still got child labor, you've got all of the um, uh, side effects to that kind of industry. So you can also look at it through a lens of like, what are the responsibilities of your job as well? Um, and so the good news is that a lot of fashion companies, ours included, are taking this on as a very serious responsibility. But I think you just need to, when you're looking at job satisfaction, not just what value are you creating, but maybe through a net-net lens, like are you creating you know, things that can harm the environment or harm people as well? Agree. So I think if we look at sort of summary here, work that helps others, according to the research, can lead you to be something that you're passionate about. And I think both James and I are saying this is true in our personal experience. And what James, I think, was pointing out was that in most industries, and unfortunately, there are some which aren't, um, you can find a connection as to why that is true. And I think what James was pointing out was that in fashion, especially sort of the faster fashion, which he was sort of involved with, with the iconic, um, may be seen as not necessarily doing that, but that's it doing it badly. Just like, I don't know, doing food badly is not good, but doing food well is good. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this is important. So maybe we'll move on to the next one, which was engaging work um, where you can enter a state of flow. And I'll just quickly talk about what flow is. I think we've talked about this in the past. So there's a bunch of research created by or started by a person called Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. Um, I cannot spell that for love nor money, but I'll put it in, in the actual um, show notes. And this Tim is Urban from Wait But Why talks about flow, flow as well. So yeah. This is basically that you have a good balance of skills versus challenge. And so, James sort of talked about this earlier, but if you've got too much skills and not enough challenge, you get bored. And if you've got too much challenge and not enough skills, you get anxious. And if you have a right balance, they have what is called flow. And so, James, I thought maybe your personal experience, engaging work, is this important for you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I, I think this is probably the missing um piece of the puzzle that I was touching on with the first one, which is work you're good at, what happens if you become an expert? Well, if it's not engaging anymore, then that can have a serious impact on your job satisfaction. So here, um, my personal experience is that I have been in a very fortunate position that when you start working for a startup that grows year on year, that kind of means it changes the very definition of your role year on year. Uh, because as companies grow, the nature of the internal workings change, the problems change, and the challenges change. Um, so it's always engaging by way of the fact that there is always problems that need solving, and there's always uh, brain that need to be put on um, on seats to help solve these problems out. So the the lens here is that how do you find a balance between something that matches your skill set 
and doesn't overwhelm either you or people in your team in the sense of the challenge being too great because that is something that I've also experienced. And that was when, you know, I had a job that I really loved having, but I was burnt out because the challenge was overwhelming in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I'd say, yeah, my first job, overwhelming. So I was like starting off in anxiety town um, and then moving to that sort of flow state and then moving into boredom. And so there's kind of a ceiling in some jobs of where you run out of challenge and you maybe only get challenge if you get promotion or, or some, some new responsibility and that isn't available. And I got so bored in my first job that I became really negative at work and I then became, I think, what a person who was adding value and adding energy positive to be around at work to being someone who was just a drainer. And basically, yeah, I've definitely found this is true. You, you, you want to be able to have a right balance and unfortunately, not all jobs can, can do this and I've definitely worked in ones where it wasn't the case and I basically was no longer someone who should have been there, I think, in hindsight because I was so bored that I was just, I was really negative each day. I'd be like, I feel like I'm just banging my head against a wall. Um, yep. uh, this is so easy. I need to be doing something else. Um, and yeah, so I'll probably stop there before I've got another sort of thing to do. But any other thoughts or do you have any questions for me, James, on this? Uh, no, no, I think we're good. Um, One of the things um, that I found and I've seen also is other people finding challenge ceilings and getting really bored. Mm. Um, and so even if it's something they're passionate about, like, I don't know, a friend you know, who really, you know, loved food as an example, I think then was basically doing things where had run out of challenge and got really, really uh, bored basically and didn't have this happen. So, I think it's really important to do this Um, and I think a good manager also is aware and conscious of where people are in that boredom Mm. flow challenge um, spectrum and then helps design tasks around making sure that's the case. Um, So, yeah. No, I agree. I think um, like so, the the engaging model, which is the right skill set matches the right challenge, um, is important. Something for you as an individual to also track, because inevitably over time, hopefully your skill set, your skill will increase. Hmm. Um, so you need to try and make sure that you are matching the challenge as your skill levels go up, mm-hmm. um, because otherwise, what was once a very fun and exciting new area or new job will seem repetitive or, um, or daft or um, you know, something that is no longer challenging. That. Okay. Um, the next one on here is supportive colleagues. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to actually read part of this because I think it's, it's really good. Obviously, if you hate your colleagues and work from a boss from hell, then you're not going to be satisfied. Since good relationships are such an important part of having a fulfilling life, it's important to be able to become friends with at least a couple of people at work. And this probably means working with at least people, a couple of people who are similar to you. And so maybe we'll stop there. I didn't really get this. Friends doesn't necessarily mean they're your best friends, but you're friendly. And mm. I found that this immensely improves my enjoyment at work is having people that you're friendly with. And I used to think that any time at work, you know, I'm, I'm paid there to be doing work for these people. So I feel very guilty, especially in my first job of having any kind of non-work discussion because I'm like, if my boss hears me having a non-work discussion, then that's bad, you know? And yeah. so I kind of steered away from it. But I realized now, you know, this was like 10 years ago, um, that that wasn't right. And that if you enjoy the people you work with, you get more done and everything. So 
I mean, have you found it important to have people you're friendly with at work? Yeah, well, I think um, anybody who has seen one episode of The Office will understand just how uh, much having good relationships at work will impact your um, your, your worker satisfaction. Um, but I want to focus on one relationship in particular, and that is the relationship with your direct manager or boss. Um, because I think that it may not trump all others in the sense that if it's not good, then you don't have work satisfaction, but it's definitely the most important. If you don't have, like, um, you know, it, it, it's a very popular saying, you don't quit your job, you quit your manager. <laughs> um, and I really, um, in the past, I have had uh, jobs where I've had great relationships with just about everyone in the office, the with the exception of my direct superior. Um, and that had the biggest effect on me because when you are working directly for someone, you know, not with, they're your, um, you know, your, you report to them. That can have a significant impact on um, your, uh, I guess, overall autonomy or your happiness in mm. that particular work. Um, so I think that's something that you need to try and focus on cultivating. Um, yes, having friendly colleagues is um, immensely beneficial. It's immensely, um, uh, you know, it, it increases your enjoyment because you can have people that you can empathize with, you can have people that you can relate with. But I think it, um, it's not anywhere near as important as making sure that you have a very constructive and open relationship with your manager. Completely agree. We should actually maybe one day do an, an episode on our experiences of trying to build relationships that work that work well mm. and also specifically with your manager. Um, the next part of the article, which they talk about here, is, however, you don't need to become friends with everyone or even like all of your colleagues. Research shows that the most important factor is whether you can get help from your colleagues when you run into problems. So this is it. Research shows that the most important factor is whether you can get help when you run into problems. Uh, James, do you have any thoughts on this one? Uh, so I think um, a really good model that explains this well is the five dysfunctions of a team. That's such a good thing. Everyone mm. should watch that, yeah. Yeah, so this is really, like you um, pointed out, this is not about having relationships with coworkers where they're your friends. But they're relationships that are built on a hierarchy model um, and the bottom one being trust. Uh, and so this is where, um, regardless of how you um, consider these people as individuals outside of work, if you can trust your colleagues while working together, then that is um, hugely beneficial to not only your um, job satisfaction, but um, the output of the team as well. Um, it goes on to four more layers, which I believe is um, having open conflict, having commitment, um, uh, there is an A and then there's results. Um, I think it has physics. But um, looking at these different dysfunctions of a team um, highlights how important it is to have people that you can work well with um, over and above just people that you like or have good relationships with. So that their trust, not fear of conflict, or lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability, and inattention to results. It's an epic thing. Um, we we get people when they join Ed Rollo to watch this as one of the videos. Um, so I thought I'd just give my two cents. If you don't feel that you can ask for support, then this is when people become really unhappy and really disengaged. I've seen it happen many times. And it's really fragile. It's kind of this thing that to get asked for support, you need to have trust, which you've sort of talked about. So it's massive. Um, and big part of being able for them to ask for support is you being friendly. <laughs> They're not some, this is, you know, even a colleague or somebody who, if I interrupt them, they're busy, you know, and then they're going to be, you know, not happy or you know, we only have work conversations here. 
or having unrealistic expectations. So for instance, I say there's low expectations, which are bad, high expectations, which are good, and unrealistic expectations, which are bad. So there's a happy middle. And having an expectation, for instance, that people can fail openly and not be chastised for this, having an expectation that people need to ask. And if they don't, then you know this is on them and different things. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, it's huge. Um, and when people sit on things that are cast, then it goes from like a small problem to a medium problem to a large problem. And then they're unhappy in the team or they don't like someone or they, they work, they, they've lost all confidence in it. And so I think it's crucial um, and that you are working with people who you feel are supportive. Um, mm-hmm. so we can ask for help and they call the social support another way is core. You don't have yeah. to be friends with everyone, but you have to feel like others are there to help you and support you. And yeah. so that means you ask people, but you also, when someone asks you something, you're supportive. So, yeah, I think yeah. it's huge. Yeah. We could probably talk about this at length in another episode, but it, um, it's so important that team dynamic is, um, is set up properly so that people aren't in fear of each other or um, mm. in this scarcity mindset. Um, but, yeah, so I think um, supportive colleague is the right way of saying it. It's not like you've got friends in the workplace, but if you do feel like that you can rely on others or you have that level of trust at the very least. All right, the last one here is, is no major negatives. Um, I thought I'd talk about a couple that I've had and James there's maybe- two more, can, is there? There are, also there's two more. No major negatives and a job that fits your lifestyle. But we're, we're running into the hour up point which we normally stop. Um, so let's, <laughs> let's do um, support, uh, sorry, no major negatives. Um, for me, I've had a couple. One is, I won't name jobs or people, um, is a person who I really um, was not a good relationship. So there was a person at one of the jobs who I believe viewed me as a threat and then went about undermining me with people, everyone, you know, peers, superiors, and and to the point where I felt like I was under siege every day and mm. that, you know, trying to take the high road just wasn't working uh, and to not engage on this. And I basically ended up coming to work and being really unhappy every single yeah. time. Yeah. And that was really, really not great. Yeah. Um, and the other one... Um, was I sort of mentioned this before, I hit boredom. Like I'm not talking about a little bit of boredom, like severe boredom. And this is part of, I think, my personality. I don't do well in terms of that boredom state. I, I become incredibly restless. And I was very young at this point. I was talking about my first job and my ability to um, regulate my emotions and to even be aware of them was very low. So I'd say my <laughs> emotional intelligence wasn't great. Uh, I still think, you know, I, I, like emotional intelligence, I would love to improve indefinitely. Uh, and, and so... Those were two major negatives and they made me very unhappy at work, both of those things. Yeah. I think work can make you really happy and I literally would dread coming to work. Um, yeah. So, yeah, any major negatives you've had? Well, yeah, so like the, um, the ones that they point out is definitely um, – so this can be uh, sub- quite subjective to people because they, they point out things like long commuting hours. Uh, anything over an hour um, can have a negative effect. Like I love my commute, which is about an hour. Over just over an hour. <laughs> because, um, it, it may be because I don't have any real time to myself outside of that, but it just gives me an opportunity to um, to do my own what what I am interested in, and that at the moment happens to be either reading or listening to podcasts. Mm. But um, I can definitely say, though, in this job that I've had, um, it really actually feels like I've had about six jobs in this one job. Um, but there was a time where um, because we had um, buyers that we needed to put out all the time. And something was implemented very poorly. I was um, thrown headfirst into working very, 
very long hours for an extended period of time. Mm, so. And so something that I was enjoying immensely was exciting and had really, really, um, you know, engaging problems and um, passionate people suddenly became an absolute burden because every day I knew I was going to be spending way too much time on fixing a, you know, a problem. You know, on one side, if you, uh, I think it's also good problems versus bad problems. Like if you have a good problem, like, you know, we have an incredible product and we need to figure out how to launch it, um, you know, in time for uh, a, a, an event, then maybe that's time to hunker down um, for a week or so and you might find that to be rewarding. But this was a bad problem. This was mm. a problem that was not like um, there's an opportunity here then. It is, there is a fire that we need to put out now, otherwise mm. it's going to get worse. Uh, and that severely impacted my um, uh, my morale. It severely impacted my relationships. It severely impacted my overall energy level, um, simply by way of the fact that I had to spend additional hours every single day. Okay, cool. Summary time. Um, summary is this. Read the 80,000 hours blog. Like literally, it is incredibly worth your time. Um, I, I sort of believe that hopefully you know almost everyone should read this um there's 12 parts to it just read part one if you're only going to read one part and then read the wait the why blog um i agree majority with both of these things um so just as a quick summary pay is not that important no money will make you sad but lots of money will make you happy a good job you need to be work that you're good at work that helps others work that's engaging supportive colleagues no major negatives and a job that fits your personal life yeah. um so i don't disagree with any of the high level outcomes there um, so for me, I think everybody is different. And so you, um, t- in order to help figure out what um, the best path for you is to not try and find the answer, but try and find as many potential solutions and see which one fits well for you. If you know you have a passion and you want to follow your passion, then that might be the right approach in, um, in your particular area. You're, you can also be um, you know, comforted in the knowledge that you can change your passions anywhere throughout your career. But for other people who might not have a particular passion, then you can look at it through this particular lens as well. Um, you, you know, you can look at what you find to be um, rewarding. You can look at things that are challenging. You can look at all of the different aspects that um, you know lead up to, according to eighty thousand hours, what is um, a very satisfying career. I think the most important thing is that um, you need to be honest with yourself and reflect often. Uh, this is not something that you just set and forget. This is something that you can ask yourself um, continuously. I think Steve Jobs said, if I um, come into the office four days in a row and not enjoying what I'm doing, then I will question the, um, I will question my job. Um, and I think I've misquoted him very poorly. <laughs> cool. uh, but the, the, the basic, yeah. Oh, sorry. Did, did we have more to say, James? Well, no, the, the, the basic um, thing there is for you to always just um, you know, ask yourself, are you happy doing what you're doing? And if the answer is no for more than um, maybe it's a month, more than a month uh, every day in a row, then um, it might be time for you to reflect on why. And the Way But Why article is a very good tool to help you do that. I agree. Um, so maybe we try to finish like we started with John Oliver. That's our show for today. Um, join us next week. Um, and yeah, if you have any things, please contact us, info at cloudstreaks.com. Thanks yeah. very much. Thanks, thank you. Bye.